If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 will be in verses 14 through 18 this morning. It feels good to say this morning and it actually be this morning. Uh, if you're not a regular at Grace Church, uh, you'll miss that, but for how long? I don't know, eight months we met in the afternoon and I consistently said this morning to the congregation every afternoon. Um, so it, it's good to say this morning, what, what a joy it, it, it is to see uh, two of our students baptized this morning. Um, I, I hope that other students that are looking on, I know that some of the younger um, children were able to come to the front to see. Uh, I hope you see the picture of the gospel that that is. I hope it makes you jealous uh, for your own relationship with the Lord. And I trust uh, the Lord is at work among our students, uh, still stirring in hearts and uh, drawing our young people to himself. Uh, what a glorious picture. What a joy to be a part of uh, a service where um, baptism takes place. I want to give you the aim of, of, of the text today, where we're going, and I want to read that text after I give you the aim, and then I'll pray again for the preaching of God's word this, this morning. Here's our aim. We must work hard for the sake of the gospel by handling the word of truth with care to warn against and avoid godless chatter. Let me repeat that. I'm certainly going to have to give explanation to what I'm about to say. Let me repeat it. We must work hard for the sake of the gospel by handling the word of truth with care to warn against and avoid godless chatter. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 reads, Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some let me pray father we pray today that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come today, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you in love with Jesus? Are, are you in love with him? Does, does Jesus enamor you? Enamored to the degree that your life is abandoned to everything else 
and given only to the glorifying of Jesus' name in the church and to the world around us. I'm talking about Philippians 3 passion and commitment for Jesus. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Do you have that kind of passion, the kind of passion that Paul writes about in Philippians 3 for Jesus? Is everything lost to you in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord? What about the good things in life? Even the acceptable things in life. Are you willing to part with those so that you can have Christ? Are you willing to forfeit it all to have Jesus? Matthew 20, excuse me, 16, 26 says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Brothers and sisters, there's only one thing that will benefit the soul of man. That's faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that will benefit a man. In today's text, Paul picks back up on a primary theme that we find running through his letters to Timothy. The truth, your conduct, and the church. Paul majors those he majors on those three things as he writes to Timothy. The truth, your conduct, and the church. There are a few things clearer in Paul's letters to Timothy than his concern for the truth that's being taught, defended, maintained, and lived out. Paul's great goal in his letters to Timothy are found in 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Listen, this is Paul's great concern, that your life would accurately reflect the gospel in the church. That your life would accurately reflect the gospel in the church. It's not my aim to re-preach 1 Timothy 3. That's already been done. We're in the series. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2 now. But we can hardly look at today's text without the larger aim in mind. When Paul writes, he says, I did it so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. He's saying to Timothy, this is how people ought to act in the church. And then he gives this description about the church. He calls the church the pillar and support of the truth. Your conduct is of great importance. But your conduct in a particular group setting is what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the church. Your conduct in the church, it should be fleshed out, observed, influenced, held accountable, encouraged, measured, within the framework of a local church. 
This is where God's family does life together. You can't live as a Christian outside the church. We just sang about that very reality a couple of songs ago. It's simply not possible. You cannot live the Christian life apart from a local body of believers. It's impossible. Everything in the New Testament is written to the saint who belongs to a church. And his description of the church is the pillar and support of the truth. In an effort to put all the pieces of what Paul's aim is in 1 Timothy 3.15, I'd say it like this. It's essential that the way you, the people of the church, live. It's essential how you live. That it accurately reflects the truth of the gospel. As we'll see in today's text, Paul gets specific in approaches to accomplish this goal. That's what he's writing about. How do we accomplish this goal to see to it that the congregation, the members of the church, conduct themselves in such a manner that they reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what he's writing about. And he gives us some specifics on how to see this accomplished. Paul wants to promote the truth of the gospel. That's what he wants. He wants the truth of the gospel to be promoted. Part of promoting the truth is defending the truth against lies. Satan has long had his devices to pervert the truth, to knock us off just one degree, because he knows over time that one degree will lead us further and further away from the truth. And if he can't pervert the truth, maybe he can at least deceive our minds. The minds of men who at some point latched onto the truth of the gospel. But I don't want us to miss the full orb of what Paul's communicating in 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is the pillar and support of truth. It is the conduct of those who belong to God's household that Paul is speaking to. And in today's text, Paul will address Timothy both about false doctrines and those who are guilty of propagating those false doctrines. Again and again in his letters, Paul says, the truth, the gospel has been entrusted to you, Timothy. You're at this church in Ephesus and the truth of the gospel, the clarity of the gospel, the defense of the gospel, it's been entrusted to you as a pastor of this church. In the same way that a person would entrust something value to the care of a guardian. You, you've seen people with bodyguards before to defend them, to protect them, perhaps because of their fame or wealth. Security guards are stationed at banks. Armored vehicles transport money. Museums have security systems and cameras. We keep our most treasured possessions in safes, and we even hide those safes somewhere secret in the home. Right now as I speak, there are a handful of men that are members of this church that are tasked with keeping us safe while we're here. We go to great lengths to protect our families. Our homes are usually well fortified with all kinds of gadgets. 
Paul speaks to Timothy this way about the gospel, which is the great truth of the church. Whatever measures you need to take, young Timothy, protect this treasure. This gospel has been entrusted to you. These truths, protect them. Our verse this morning, verse 14, begins with this command. There's four commands that we'll see this morning. Here's the first one. Remind them of these things is what Paul says to Timothy. These things that we are to be reminded of is the sermon that Jordan preached last week. Paul tells Timothy to remind the Ephesians of the strength that God supplies by his grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That grace is God's salvation to us through Christ. Romans 1, 16, 17, familiar verses to so many of us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. According to Romans, Romans 1 Strength or power is the gospel. It's found in the gospel. The gospel's power is that it has the ability to save sinful men like you and me. And that the saving power of God can be obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. There's access to the power of God through Christ. But the reminder that Paul gives to Timothy is one of action. Remember the points of Jordan's sermon last week. Be strong in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. And he gave us six ways to do that. By making, multiplying disciples of Jesus. By suffering with Jesus' workers. Willing toll, not whipping torture. The prize is worth the price, remember? The third thing that Jordan said last week was by seeking Jesus in his word. We Find strength in the grace of God by seeking Jesus in his word. By, number four, fixing your eyes on the biblical Jesus. And by laying your life down for Jesus' people. And lastly, by knowing and trusting Jesus. By the way, Jordan was bragging to me this week in the office. Y'all know we, we share a little office space and so there's a lot of Good conversation, but he bragged to me that last week's sermon was only 35 minutes long. That's what he told me. Well, I went on to listen to his sermon because I wanted to be informed about this week, and I realized 35 minutes into the sermon, he wasn't through preaching yet. It was a slight exaggeration. It was exactly 38 minutes and 56 seconds, which I think is excellent work for our brother. Oh, round down. All right, yeah. To, to 35, I see how it works, yeah. Don't teach math to your students, let Tracy handle that. And I'm not trying to brag right now, but I think I could sum up Jordan's sermon in one sentence. Be strong by treasuring Jesus Christ above all else. Be strong by treasuring Jesus Christ above all else. All joking aside, the point is, Paul is urging Timothy to call the Ephesian saints to action. 
He's calling them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You want to reflect the gospel? You want to preach to people? Live like Jesus Christ is your treasure. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy to relay to the church in Ephesus. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Act like you belong to the household of God. Behave like citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Paul does this himself in his letter to the Ephesians. He doesn't just need Timothy to do it. He, he wrote the Ephesians himself, and he says in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What calling? To represent the gospel, to be the church. Following that reminder, we pick up the aim of this week's text. I said there were four commands in today's text. The first one's remind. We just saw that. That gets us going. But he gives us three more commands. I'll tell you what they are right now, just in the verb only, and then we'll dig into each of those. Warn, labor, and avoid. Warn, labor, and avoid. See, the first thing that I want you to see in today's text is that we've been called to warn against destructive wrangling. All right, I know that's an awkward word, but we find it here in the text, and I tried to come up with another word, but wrangling just fits. We've been called to warn against destructive wrangling. He says this in verse 14, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. These words that we find in the text, solemnly charge or solemnly testify, are actually only one Greek word. And it means to, to make a careful testimony, to confirm the facts before you attest to something. Testify, charge, warn. That Greek word is used 15 times in the New Testament, and it's usually to refer to the validity of the gospel. The gospel has been proven. We checked out all the facts, and it's true. Christ really died. He really bled on a cross. And when his blood was shed, that blood really did pay the price for your sins. And when he died, your sins died with him. And when he was buried, that's where your sins went. And when Jesus rose from the grave, the old you stayed in the grave. And the new you rose with Christ, just like we saw a picture of in baptisms earlier in the service. Raised to walk in newness of life. Those facts have been confirmed. He can solemnly testify of the truth of the gospel. These facts are the truth of Jesus Christ. This solemn testimony is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to the use of this Greek word in a couple of other texts, or at least one other text in the book of Acts. Luke uses these words in Acts to give us a better understanding of exactly what Paul meant in the second letter to the Timothy when he says, solemnly charge. Listen to, listen to Acts 18.5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. So imagine, Paul's given himself entirely to God's word. And this is what comes out of that. Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was 
the Christ. He's the Messiah. It's the gospel. After swimming, devoting, giving all of his time to the word, the one thing that Paul walks away with is Jesus is the Messiah. Christ is the gospel. This is true. It's been confirmed. It's good news. The solemn testimony is that Jesus was the Christ. The establishment of the gospel was of such importance that it became vital that it be solemnly testified about. The idea here is that the same serious vigilance that the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ being established is the same seriousness that Timothy is to take concerning these wrangling words. All the care that Paul took in knowing the gospel, Paul saying, with that same care, Timothy, you need to approach these wrangling words that are taking place in the church of Ephesus with great seriousness, solemnly. And this is what he says. Charge them in the presence of God. God is a witness not to wrangle about words. Now, I told you, wrangle's a, it's an awkward word. It's not one that we use very often. It, it simply means to contend with, to argue about empty and trifling matters, to, to quarrel, to fight, to strive over these things. Listen. We all know words matter. That's not what Paul's communicating here. He's saying words don't matter. There are certainly times in Scripture and throughout history where it was necessary to split hairs about words. Many false doctrines have spiraled out of the misunderstanding of words. But in today's text, we're told that the sort of debates, the sort of conversations that were taking place by some in the church of Ephesus were useless. These aren't those kind of words that brought understanding to the gospel. Quite the opposite. He says they're useless in the text. They're nothing. They're of no value. They do no good. They have no profit. These are the kind of words that he's talking about. The sort of debates that were taking place were not doctrinal defenses of the faith, but empty chatter. It's not the words themselves, but rather the heart of the one wrangling about the words that Paul's really digging to. The words themselves can certainly be destructive. We know that. But it is the heart of the one arguing over the words that exposes the real problem. And the spirit of these individuals, unfortunately, is contagious. They always seek to take others down with them on their destructive path. So how do we know when argument over words is worth having or when it's useless wrangling like is described in our text today? That's the real question. I believe there's two parts to that answer. Let me give them to you. I think we find in the text, number one is listen to the wisdom of the elders. I do believe that God gives good gifts to the church and one of those good gifts are elders, pastors. God has called and equipped his under shepherds with the arduous task of both diving deep into theological concerns 
for the sake of the church as well as the weighty responsibility of caring for the souls of men. These men don't tread lightly about their responsibility. In short, if you're unsure about whether this topic that's being discussed is worth your time or it's the wrangling of words, ask the elders. I trust God will use the economy of the church that he has put in place, both the order and this church that he so loves to use men who he has called and equipped to discern these matters. Paul is certainly entrusting in Timothy the confidence to discern what is empty chatter in Ephesus and what is profitable. He's put that responsibility in Timothy's hands. It's been entrusted to you, Timothy, this gospel. The care of the gospel has been entrusted to you. And I can testify that through a lot of pain and tears that the elders of this church have watched some former members walk away from Grace Church and stray from the faith. You saints have suffered with us. I've watched you weep too. But when in doubt, seek the collective wisdom of God's elected under shepherds. But I said there's two parts because they go hand in hand. The second one is observe the effects of the hearers. He says, solemnly charge them in the presence of God. He's talking to Timothy. This is your job, Timothy, to discern what is a wrangling of words that are useless. And then he says this about those words and leads to the ruin of hearers. This test, it's a little more difficult to follow, but it is certainly a proven method. You know the old proverb or the old saying, time will tell. Time will tell. It still rings true. Tom always tells. It always tells. It always reveals the motive of a person's heart. It always makes clear that you're either on the right path or the wrong one. It exposes the error of our ways. The text says that those who participate in these wrangling of words will eventually be led to ruin. Destruction is really the, the, the word used here. It's the same word used to describe the consequence of Sodom and Gomorrah in 2 Peter, where they're reduced to ashes. So when he, when he says ruin, that's what he's talking about. Like the city raised, totally consumed. That kind of destruction is what the wrangling of words, it may seem innocent, it may not seem like a big deal, but those wrangling of words leads to destruction. That's a steep consequence for simply listening to words. But these aren't any words. These are empty words intended by Satan to deceive you. These conversations are not harmless. They're loaded with eternal consequences. Again, you can watch with much sadness those who will drift away from the faith because they are caught up in words about things that aren't rooted in the gospel. Please heed the warning found in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and do not get caught up in matters that are less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't go there. Don't be enamored by those conversations. The second thing that I want us to see 
we find in verse 15. It's the second command. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does, who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The second thing that I want you to see is this, labor to absorb the gospel. Labor to absorb the gospel. Diligent means to, to make every effort. The, the, the word here has a, 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 an eagerness to it, a, 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 a hasteness. Do your best. The old King James Version says study, and when it was written, study had a little bit different meaning than the way we would interpret it today, but it all means the same thing. Work hard, labor, do the difficult work necessary. The idea being communicated here is that we should go to whatever links necessary to see this through. There's a sense of urgency in the wording, a, a resolve, a, a determination. I like the way Robert Yarbrough says it in his commentary, spare no effort, tackle this no matter what. Be diligent to do what? Present yourself approved to God. Not trying to win his approval with merits, but present yourself approved to God, acceptable, pleasing to him. The idea is not to study theology until God approves of you, but rather be diligent to understand God's words as a means of pleasing him. It pleases God when you seek his face to know him, to know him through his word. He's not telling you, if you go study, I'll approve of you. He's saying, come find me in my word. That's pleasing to me when you seek after me. Notice that the text does not say there will be no disappointment. It says that there will be no shame. There's no shame in a person who gives their all in a matter. I'll spare you a thousand sports illustrations that come to mind in this moment and remind you of the three illustrations that Jordan shared from last week's text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, just a few verses before our day. It says this in verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, that wrangling about of words, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And then he gives us two more illustrations, verse 5 and 6. And if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And then the third the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. According to those examples, we are to work hard, suffer hardship, stay focused, train with a purpose, labor toward the goal. The reward of diligent label, excuse me, label, labor is the fruit of your labor. When you work hard, you gain something. About a month ago, Josiah and I went to... Uh, uh, New York, the Lord did good, good things in our hearts while we were there, but it was, a, um, it was an awkward showing of Grace's uh, carpentry skills, right? We went to help build out apartments, and uh, as you've heard me say before, um, on a scale of one to ten, Josiah and I are probably a combined two. Uh, in carpentry skills, and that's the people that showed up to help build these apartments. Well, as the Lord would have it, 
the people that were supposed to help us do it there got called away because there was flooding in Vermont. And because of the flooding in Vermont, things got shifted around. And instead of building out apartments that they probably didn't want crooked doors and windows that would eventually fall out, all those kind of things, we ended up building or tearing apart and building a porch on the front of the pastor's house. Uh, Pastor Joel Aubrey, who our churches had the privilege of supporting. Such a good brother. Well, Josiah and I are crowbars in hand, just pulling this old porch. These are Victorian homes. We literally found nails, square nails, the size of my, the length of my hand, uh, rusty. I mean, the, the porch had been on there for years. So many layers of paint, we couldn't count them. And really the paint was what was holding the porch together. The wood was rotten, but the layers of paint was just calling it, causing it all to stay together. It was a monstrous task. And Josiah, being the brilliant mind that he is, said toward the end of the week, uh, I mean that, he's a pretty sharp fella. He says at the end of the week, you know, all the time that we spent saving money, building the porch for you, Joel, if we would have all gone and got part-time minimum wage jobs and taken the money, worked the same hours and taken the money, we could have paid to have this porch done plus some. So we put in all that labor and Josiah had figured out in his mind while we're doing this laborious labor, right? That it would have been easier just to make fries at Chick-fil-A, right? Or mix a drink at Starbucks for minimum wage and we could have just paid somebody to do this and probably would have done it better than us. Well, one of the things that came out of that discussion was this. One of the things that we gained in our labors was not this glorious new porch that Josiah and I were gonna sit on a swing and enjoy. We may never see that porch again for the rest of our lives. But what we did gain was the joy of knowing we had served somebody. What we did gain was a little more knowledge about how to be carpenters. We gained something that we didn't have before. There was fruit for our labor. There was fruit for our labor. One of the things that we ought to labor for is the fruit of the gospel. Listen, we don't earn salvation. We don't get the gospel because we've done something. But when you labor for the sake of the gospel, there is fruit that you gain from that. You gain fruit from the work. What a glorious reward it is to not only please God, but to know him better. But what exactly is the labor that Timothy is called to here? We find it in the text, accurately handling the word of truth, to be pleasing to God in a way that we handle the word of God, to preach the truth, to herald the gospel. Let me give you a quick survey of the truth that Paul's talking about as he writes to Timothy. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, he says, For this I was appointed, talking about the gospel, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He says again, the law is made for whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul keeps hitting on this truth. What is sound doctrine? What is truth? In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following, 1 Timothy 4, 6. 
1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16, prescribe and teach these things. What things? To give attention to the public reading of Scripture. You want truth? Read God's word out loud. To the exhortation and teaching, verse 13. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. The elders who rule, 1 Timothy 5, 17, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Do you see the pattern that Paul is laying out for Timothy concerning the truth? Work hard, labor to know the truth, labor to teach the truth, labor to preach and teach these principles. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 2, the best defense against empty chatter is to diligently feed the sheep the word of God. This hour, hour and a half that we spend together on Sunday mornings is of immense value because the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed. Paul's saying to Timothy, load up on the truth, build a fortress of truth, fix your eyes on the Jesus of the Bible, drink the gospel, be filled with Christ-centered thoughts. The call Paul is placing on Timothy is to labor hard to absorb the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. Don't take your eyes off of it, young Timothy. Keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking at the gospel. Keep looking at what Jesus accomplished. Don't stray from the truth. Keep giving them the truth again and again and again. And when they wrangle about words, give them the truth again. There's a fourth command. Remind Warn, label, and here's the last command. Avoid. Avoid godless, cancerous chatter. Avoid godless, cancerous chatter. Verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. It almost seems like a repeat of verse 14, except I believe Paul takes a step further. Don't just warn others of the destructive consequence of wrangling words, but also instruct them how to respond to this type of behavior. Avoid it. Avoid this kind of behavior. Avoid these kind of conversations. Avoid the wrangling of words. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. The talk was godless. That's what empty chatter is. It's godless chatter. If the only thing that gives something value is God, then the absence of God means it has no value. It's empty, no value. Let's not miss the deceptive nature of these conversations that were taking place in the church of Ephesus. Paul did not say that the conversations did not contain talk of God, but rather that they were godless. God's name was being thrown out left and right by these men. But the things that they were speaking were godless. You can speak of the Lord in vain. And I believe that's exactly what was taking place in these conversations. God's name was being mentioned. But there was no honoring of God in their conversations. Listen to me. We're all susceptible to this. We all are. Pastors who stand in the pulpit. Saints for 20, 30, 40 years, new believers, we're all susceptible to getting caught up in what Paul is trying to get Timothy to address in the church of Ephesus. We all have preferences. 
We're all predisposed to think certain ways. Our upbringing, our fleshly biases, they're they're rooted deep in us. The old flesh is not going to give up on you. He's going to try to reclaim your life again and again and again. And if we're not careful, all it takes is a moment of taking our eyes off the prize to not look at Jesus, to not look at the gospel, to not consider the church. And selfishness begins to creep in. And self begins to interpret God's word. And self begins to influence others. And self begins to promote the idols in our heart. And self begins to lure others into our agenda. And the next thing you know, We've drifted away and we've taken others with us. The centrality of Christ in our life is, it's gone, it's missing. And our conduct and our conversations begin to reveal this. It can happen to any of us. We can all produce these idols in our heart. We do. We can all begin to live for self rather than staying fixed on Christ. And we combat this threat by daily, diligently feeding upon the word of God. Listen to the kinds of things that Paul says who, of people who once attested to following Jesus. People who said they believed the gospel, but they got caught up in something else. Here's another survey of Timothy on false teaching. Things that begin to be thrown out there. He says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, 1 Timothy 1.3, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. See, they're not just treat, teaching strange doctrines. They got caught up in myths and these endless genealogies, crazy stuff. He says again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, by means of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of liars, Seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in or by those who believe and know the truth. They were teaching things that weren't true. He says again in 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. There's telling tales. He says, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Again, the proof that this empty chatter has taken place is that those who participate in such activity will eventually end up further down the path of ungodliness. Sometimes ungodliness looks like total debauchery. They just dive headlong into the ways of the world. They just give themselves to everything that the world spits out at them. But sometimes ungodliness looks like self-righteousness. Sometimes the ungodliness that Paul warns about is self-righteousness. It's the latter that concerns me more than total debauchery. It's the self-righteous one. Some have just outright abandoned the faith. They're in total degradation, but others have suddenly drifted from the church and God's sound wisdom, chasing things that are less than gospel truth. But I'll say this, in all my years of ministry, a person who has abandoned the faith has never been able to persuade anyone else in the church to go with them. You want to dive headlong in the world, nobody's going with you. But I have 
regrettably observed the cancer of those individuals who were talking about things that sounded godly but did not emphasize Christ or his gospel, taking handfuls of others down their destructive path of godlessness. And verse 17 says, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Gangrene, a cancer, a corruption that spreads. That's what happens if you don't address this empty chatter. That's what happens if you listen to it. That's what happens if you take part in it. You're inviting cancer into your spiritual body. These conversations are cancer. Please listen to your elders when they try to warn you against such dangers. Please observe the destruction of those who have taken this path. Be alarmed by what you see down the road in these people's lives. It's scary. It's cancerous. Paul names names. I have no desire to do such a thing this morning. But what we can learn from the listing of these two names is this. These were real people. This really happened. Men who once named the name of Jesus as their savior participated in these side conversations that didn't major on the gospel and they became a cancer in the life of the church. That's frightening. That's frightening. That ought to make you shudder. Let me conclude with a few specifics in the final verse of today's text. Verse 18, he's speaking about these two men men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Hymenaeus and Philetus didn't start here. They didn't enter into the church saying to themselves, let's see what we can stir up. Let's see who we can pull away from the faith. Let's see how we can jack up the doctrines of this church. That wasn't their approach. But they went astray. They went astray from the truth. The gospel ceased to be primary. And once the gospel becomes secondary, the drifting ceases to be drifting. It becomes like a snowball rolling downhill. They begin to deny clear biblical teaching like the resurrection. Listen to how Robert Yarbrough again describes these wayward beliefs. He says, the resurrection has already taken place. That's that's what they were teaching. This is what he says about it. It, That's not a statement about Jesus' resurrection itself. It is about the meaning of his resurrection for his followers. Some in the early decades of the church were legitimately trying to lead others astray by applying the Bible's end-time teaching, eschatology, in a manner called acute realized eschatology, an over-realized view of the end times. And in this view, they were teaching that the future is now. Believers already enjoy the full benefit of God's eternal forgiveness. And it's simply not true. And Paul's calling it out here, and he's telling Timothy to call it out. Rather than Christ being central, being primary, they begin to major on lesser things like the end times. You heard Jordan talk about Revelation this morning. It's a wonderful book. We should not shy away from it. We should embrace it. We should study it. But it's not how you form 
your theology of all of God's word simply apart. A misunderstanding of the resurrection is the same as abandoning the faith. The problem is this doctrinal error was being propagated to others who were following suit. Men who have gone astray from the truth and they upset the faith of some. To upset the faith of some is an aggressive cancer that the church must be vigilant to combat. We combat false doctrine by diligently studying the truth. We combat this threat to the church by looking at Jesus again. We combat this cancer by preaching the gospel every Sunday. We combat this cancer by preaching the gospel to ourselves every morning. We combat this kind of error by addressing the individuals who are in error. We combat this as a church by seeking the wisdom of God's elders and observing the destruction of those who have walked down this path. Listen, we must work hard for the sake of the gospel by handling the word of truth with care to warn against and avoid godless chatter. This is what I would like for us to do this morning. It's unscripted, so I haven't asked anybody, but as we close today, rather than me pray, I'm just gonna ask three individuals in the life of the church to stand and pray that God would cause this church to be so enamored with Jesus, so in love with the gospel, that we don't stray from the truth and that God would sniff out, help us to sniff out and to close off every wrangling conversation that could take place in the life of this church. I'm just asking for three people to pray on behalf of Grace Church in this manner. If you'll pray at the end of that third prayer, our music team will come and lead us in song. So if everybody will just now bow their head and if you feel led to pray, just stand. No microphone's coming. Just stand where you're at. Plead with the Lord to be gracious to Grace Church.